And Father, as we prepare our hearts to receive your word, we're just asking that you would please remove any distraction from our minds. We ask that you will please open our eyes and help us behold wondrous things out of your word. For we ask all these things as well in Jesus' name. Amen. I would like to invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Matthew 7. Let's go to Matthew, the seventh chapter, and let's look at the Bible very clearly. <clears throat> and let's see what the Word of God has to say to us. We're in Matthew, the seventh chapter, and these are some very solemn words from the Lord, and they're worthy of consideration. And I want you to study with me this morning as we're looking at Matthew, the seventh chapter, and we're going to look at verses 21 to 23. Uh, very known text of Scripture. Uh, I don't know if it is fully understood, and therefore it would be well for us to study it deeply. So let's take a look at it. It says, Not everyone that saith unto me what? Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. It says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Christ acknowledges that they were workers. He doesn't deny that. But ultimately, he says their works were works of iniquity. So that one of the solemn realities for us is we need to understand it is possible to be members of the church. It is possible to be workers in the church and still be recognized as children of iniquity. It is because of this that we don't want this to be our reality, that we need to find out how can we make sure by the grace of God, that we do not fall into this category? How do we make sure that as young brothers and sisters in Christ, that we don't fall into this category of individuals that Christ is going to have to utter these extremely sad words? I believe that Jesus will not say, depart from me, I never knew you, with a smile on his face. I believe he's going to say that with tears pouring from his eyes. I believe that these are the saddest words to come from the lips of Jesus, that he has to look at people that were serving and doing lots of things, but they were not doing the main thing. Now the question is, what is the main thing? What is it, Jesus makes it clear what they did not do. They were workers of iniquity. But what is it that they should have done that would have allowed them to enter into the gates, to enter into heaven? Does anybody get it? Did anybody catch it in the verses? What is it that they should have been doing that could have enabled them to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Say it a little louder. Okay, they did not do the will of the Father. So notice, they were doing a lot of things, but they did not do the main thing. The main thing, according to the text, is that they did not do the will of the Father. So what do you think is the most important question in the world? What is the will of the Father? So let's go to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If we go to 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, you will find exactly what the will of God is. And the Bible makes it very clear, very, very plain language. And I want you to see what it says. 1 Thessalonians we're going to chapter 4, and when you get there, just let me know by saying amen. amen. So when you look at 1 Thessalonians 4, we can see from verse 3 exactly what the will of God is. And you want to mark that in your Bible if you are one who marks your Bibles. You want to mark this because this is the will of God. This is the key of how an individual can get from earth to heaven. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 3, it says, For this is the will of God. And what is the will of God according to the verse? Even your sanctification, the result of true sanctification is we flee fornication. So the will of God is that you and I become sanctified people, holy 
people. This is the issue right now, not just in Christianity. This is the issue right now, even in Seventh-day Adventism. There's a lot of talk. There's a lot of profession. There's a lot of proclamation, but there's not enough living. This is an issue. This is not even an issue. It's a crisis. Is that there is more that we profess than we live as a people. And God wants us to understand his desire is for you and I to be holy people. He wants us to literally be like him. And with Christ, it is possible. So therefore, when I think about this, no wonder Ellen White makes this statement here where she says, as the storm approaches, she says, a large class. What kind of class? A large class who have professed faith in the third angel's message. What class of people on earth profess faith in a third angel's message? Who are they called? Seventh-day Seventh Adventists. So this quote, does it apply to Seventh-day Adventists? Yeah. Yes. It says a large class who have professed faith in the third angel's message, but have not been what? Sanctified through obedience to the truth. It says abandon their position and join the ranks of the opposition, and they become the most bitter enemies of their former brethren. This is a reality that is written in inspiration, and we can't change it, but by the grace of God, we don't have to be part of it. Are you following? So when we studied last time, we saw that we have a prophetic responsibility to help spare or save lives, to be instruments in the hands of God to save lives like Joseph to be an instrument in the hands of God to save lives like Daniel, to be instruments in the hands of God to save lives like those young children that were heralding the coming of Jesus. God has helped us understand that we have a prophetic responsibility. It is imperative that we understand who we are and whose we are and what God has given to us so that way we may do his work efficiently and the goal will be accomplished that we will be holy ultimately as God is holy. It is for this reason that this morning, all I'm going to do is I'm going to give you, the, I have entitled our, our study together, Practical Instructions. That's it. It's just simply that, Practical Instructions. What are some of the closing instructions that God would have me to give to you for these few minutes that we have together? Practical Instructions. You and I have a great goal. Your goal is that God expects something that the majority of the world and even churches today say is impossible. God expects you to be just like him. He expects you to literally have his character. He expects you to be holy just like Jesus when he walked on this earth. And therefore, that's going to take everything from you. I'm serious when I say that because one thing that you're going to face is something called temptation. Is that right? And as long as you have human nature, you shall be tempted. But we have to understand when and when the temptations come to us, God has given us counsel. Go to the book of James chapter 4. Let's look at the counsel. James chapter 4. When temptation comes... God has given a counsel to us. And I want you to see what the counsel is. James chapter 4. We're going to the book of James. We're looking at chapter 4. And we're going to consider verse 7 because our desire is to understand what is the practical counsel uh, that God wants to give to us knowing that we're going to face temptation. Well, the Bible says in James 4, and if you're there, let me know by saying amen. The Bible says in James 4 and verse 7, another text of scripture, you want to mark it if you haven't marked it. In James 4 and verse 7, the Bible says, do what? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. As a result of submitting yourself to God, letting not your will but his will be done, he can then endow you with power that now you can do the next part of the verse. What does the next part of the verse say? Resist the devil that he may flee from you. 
you cannot resist the devil if your life is not a life of submission. It's not going to happen. You can say, Satan, I rebuke you all you want. And he'll laugh in your face and literally make you do things you never thought you would do. And I'm very serious when I say that. And I say that not only from theory. I say that from experience. I remember a time in my life where I was not submitting unto God. I like being in the church. I like the fact that I had a lot of friends that I could see on Sabbath. But at the same time, I also had a deep love for sin. And I did not want to let it go. So as long as the preachers would preach anything else but the need to turn away from sin, I was happy. And I would just come to church and they would tell me how great I am. And they would tell me how wonderful I am. So what would happen is I, I would literally go to church and, you know, I, I would, they, they would praise me. They would tell me how great I am. They would tell me how wonderful I am. And uh, they gave me offices. Before you know it, I became a youth leader. And when I was a youth leader, I would tell young people, flee fornication. And when the sun would set, I'd be the first one in the bed of fornication. I was literally sinning against God. I'm an AYS leader. But at the same time, I'm unconverted. I'm a child of Belial. I literally love sin. And I did not love Jesus. So as a result of that, I knew how to tell young people a bunch of stuff that I myself was not practicing. So I would tell young people, stay away from fornication, fornications of the devil, et cetera, et cetera. But as soon as I was tempted strong enough, I would go into that bed of fornication almost easily. I would tell everybody, oh, the Bible says in Matthew 26 that, you know, they made me a health and temperance director. And when they made me a health and temperance director because I took an interest in health reform, they made, they made me health and temperance director. So here it is now. I'm barely, you know, two, three years in the church. I'm terribly unconverted, but I had a lot of knowledge. I studied and I learned how to memorize Bible verses and spirit of prophecy quotes and all that. So people literally said, Dwayne must be holy because he knows all these verses. You know, people who think like that, those people are deceived. I'm going to tell you right now, a donkey and a parrot knows how to repeat verses. You have to understand that it's, you, it takes more than repeating verses and spirit of prophecy quotes to be recognized by heaven as a child of God. And so it is that I'm a health and temperance leader. I'm telling everybody, get off of meat. But here it is. I'm sneaking in McDonald's when no other seven-day Adventists are there. And I'm going around saying, let me get that fish sandwich. Let me go ahead and get this. Let me get the, and I'm, I'm indulging in the very things that I'm telling everybody else to flee from. Then they made me a youth elder. They made me a youth elder. And I remember I was studying Matthew 26, and I was studying when Peter denied Christ twice, but then it was the third one that got my attention. I remember studying Matthew 26, and I look at the third time Peter denied Christ. And he didn't just deny him. The Bible says he began to curse and swear. So I started saying, man, cursing and swearing is wrong. So I would tell everybody in the church, hey, folks, cursing and swearing is wrong. If you curse and swear, you're a sinner. And I would go ahead and point out ABC truths, but here it is, when somebody would cut me off on those streets of New York, when somebody would get in the way of me, when somebody would get me mad enough, I found that that old Egyptian language was still in my own mouth. It was still in my own heart. God wants us to understand he's not going to bring anybody like that into his house. He can't trust hearts like that, brothers and sisters, and we can't blame him. God has made everything available to us so that you can be holy as he is holy. That's the reason why when Christ came to the earth, he did not come to the earth with a sinless nature. He came to the earth with a sinful nature. That is literally why he came. He understood temptation. He understood trial. He understood the challenges of life in every phase and even worse than you will ever face. And not once did he sin against his father. You and I have the same power you and I have the same example that has been set before us. And therefore, God says, my requirement for my sons and my daughters is that I expect nothing less than holiness 
from my people. And holiness is not something that exists just on Sabbath. Holiness is not something that exists just at camp meetings. It exists when you're in your bedroom with your high-speed internet and your PDA Apple iPhone or Android phone and nobody else is around. God still expects you to be holy when you visit websites. You understand that? God expects holiness at every phase of your life. So therefore, we're going to talk about practical instructions. What are some things we need to be aware of? What are some things we need to be aware of? What are some things that we have to start experiencing so that by the grace of God, we do not fall into the trap of just being a Seventh-day Adventist by name, but not lifestyle? Notice, number one. Peter or the Apostle Paul, they, they, there was a statement that was made as he was getting ready to leave the church, and he was leaving the elders in charge of the church. And he said in the book of Acts chapter 20, verses 29 to 31, it says, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. It is often that when a good gospel work is done, Satan waits on standby. If enough of the power of the Holy Spirit is in a meeting, Satan will not be able to penetrate and reach the hearts of God's people at that moment, except they yield. But when the meetings are over, when the holy convocations are over, when the camp meeting is over, and you go back to what's called daily, regular life, I promise you there are going to be some wolves in sheep's clothing that are going to be waiting for you. They're going to be individuals that are going to come and they're going to try to undo the blessings that you have received. Many a times you have to understand there's going to be false teachers that will come to you and many a times they'll teach you false doctrines. They will present to you false concepts and they will try to steal away the gems and the precious uh, diamonds and pearls of God's word that has been given to you. And this is why, brothers and sisters, as Brother Sebastian has been sharing and others, that we need to start really learning how to study our Bibles. You got to get to a place that video games, videos on television, all of the different sitcoms, a lot of these movies, etc. These things should not be our desire if we are children preparing to meet our God. They are distractions. We need to start becoming more familiar with the word of God. There are concepts that people will try to bring to you. One is fanatical. There are some people that's going to try to tell you there's all these different works that you have to do to be saved. And that is fanaticism. There's no work that you can do. There's no change of dress. There's no change of diet. There's no change of location of where you live. There is no change of anything in your life that you can do that can merit salvation. There will be fanatics that will literally come to you, and they will try to give you a message to say, if you do this, if you do this, and if you believe this, then this is how you can earn favor with God. Beware, brothers and sisters. There are many fanatical teachings of which I have no time to go through it. One of your ministers here came to me and said, Dwayne, there's these groups, the 2520 organizations and all this stuff, and they are beating us up. A minister said that to me here. And he said, could you please, because I wrote a 36-page document on this, on this heresy that was spreading all this separation amongst God's people, and it began to spread like wildfire. And thank the Lord, it touched some people's hearts, and it helped some people stay on a straight and narrow path. So he literally came to me. 
And he said, could you please meet with us as ministers and help us understand how to deal with these heresies that are tearing away our churches? Well, one of the things I'm going to let the ministers know or anybody know is you can't deal with any heresy unless you know the word. You have to know the Bible. You can't just exercise arbitrary authority and say, look, this is my church, so get out of here. People are too intelligent now. You, you're not going to get far with that. You got to know how to say, oh, so you believe Leviticus 26 teaches that? Well, I tell you what, let's go to Leviticus 26 and let's study it verse by verse. You got to know how to study the Bible, how to go through present truth and to understand God's words for yourselves. So there are fanatics that will come to you and give you all sorts of foul messages to try to tell you that, hey, you got to do this and do that in order to be saved. The Bible is emphatically clear in the book of Ephesians 2. Go there with me, please. In the book of Ephesians 2, the Bible is emphatically clear of how we are saved. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians, we're going to chapter 2, and the Bible says in Ephesians 2, starting at verse 8, and when you get there, please let me know by saying amen. The Bible says in Ephesians 2 and verse 8, it says, for by what? For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So we are saved by God's what? We are saved by God's grace. There is nothing you can do to earn that. That is something that God makes available to us in spite of us. But faith is the hand that grabs grace that God offers to us. In other words, it's kind of like a check. If somebody wrote you a check for 10.5 million pounds, if somebody wrote you a check for 10.5 million pounds, how many of you would be happy? How many of you would be happy, like excited? Man, somebody wrote me a check for 10. All right, let me show you the difference between me and you. I would not be happy. I'd be interested, but I wouldn't be happy. Let me tell you when I would be happy. I would be happy when I take that check and take it to the bank. And when I take it to the bank and deposit it, and then when I see that my account goes from one pound to 10.6 pound, once I see it go higher, then I can say, all right, now I'm happy. You get it? So a check written means nothing until it is cashed. Is that right? So keep that in mind. A check written means nothing until it is cashed. If all you have is a check for 10.5 million pounds, are you just as broke as before? Yes, you are. It's only until you cash the check, that's when now you've been enriched. When Jesus died on the cross to make salvation available to you and I, it was as if it were a check written. But the problem with the people of the world is they won't cash the check. And if you don't cash the check, you don't get the benefits. You understand that? So grace, we are saved by grace, this blessed check that has been written. We are saved by this grace, but I must grab it by faith. I must deposit it. I must accept it by faith. But watch what it does. Continuing in Ephesians 2, it says, verse 9, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto what? Unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So true grace always produces good works. You follow that? That's so simple, brothers and sisters. So there are some fanatics that's going to try to make it seem like your good works is what saves you. According to the Bible, is that true? So there will be some false teachers that will try to come to you and tell you by what you do, you shall be saved. Beware, because some of these folks are wolves in sheep's clothing. But there's another type of wolf as well. 
while there's one wolf that will tell you that you are going to be saved by certain works you do, there are some people that will say you'll be saved regardless of what you do. Listen to me again. Another danger that can come to us in the form of false teachers teaching false doctrine is that there are some people that will not say you are saved by what you do, but there are some people that will say you're saved regardless of what you do. I don't know if any of you have seen this before. You ever seen this picture? It spreads a lot through, uh, you know, our ranks and some of our books and stuff. You ever, you ever seen this picture? It's a picture of a white man, and he has kind of like a sad-looking face. He has a mustache, and he's wearing a dingy-looking robe, a very dirty-looking robe, and he's hanging his head down like this. And then you see these two hands that are over him with a pure white robe. And then the two hands are basically taking the white robe and putting it upon the person. Have, how many of you ever seen that image before? It's, it's, it's spread a lot through. Okay. Now, I remember I used to see that, and I used to say, oh, that is such a beautiful picture of God's amazing grace. And I remember I looked at that, and then one day I went to Zechariah 3. Go to Zechariah 3 with me. One day, when Zechariah, when I read Zechariah, that picture that I thought was pretty became the ugliest picture I've ever seen in my life. And I want you to see why. Go to the book of Zechariah chapter 3. It's an ugly picture. Anytime lies and errors are presented before God's people, it is ugly. The Bible says in Zechariah, notice what it says as we consider Zechariah, and we're looking at uh, chapter 3. When you get there, just let me know by saying amen. Now watch Zechariah 3. That picture was supposed to be a reflection of the book of Zechariah 3. But let me show you Zechariah 3, and then you tell me if the picture is accurate. It says in Zechariah 3, And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now watch verses 3 to 5 very carefully. 3 to 4. It says, now Joshua was clothed with what kind of garments? Filthy garments. So it says Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. So this is that image. Remember, again, got this Caucasian brother, got a mustache hanging down, has head down, and he has on this dirty robe. He was trying to represent Joshua. Okay? So it says Joshua has these filthy garments. But watch verse 4 carefully. It says in verse 4, and he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Do what with the filthy garments? Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with the change of raiment. Do you see anything different from what the verses say versus what the picture shows? The picture shows the pure white robe being covered over the dirty garment. But the verse shows that the dirty garment had to be taken away and then the white robe was applied. Do you follow that? So that means that when I come to Christ, I can't say, all right, I accept Jesus with my girlfriend who I'm committing fornication with presently. We can't say I come to Jesus and I'm going to continue working at my job where I'm breaking his holy Sabbath day presently. We cannot enter into a relationship with Christ still practicing sin. So there are some people that will say you are saved by your works. There are other people that will say you are saved regardless of your works, and they're both lies. You and I have to understand we are saved by grace through faith, but there is an acceptance that, Lord, the life that I once lived, by your grace, I will no longer live. 
You need to understand the plan of salvation so that you can be messengers of light. Are you following that? All right. Now, that's one thing you need to keep in mind. This is why one of the great things you need to do is you need to understand you are not. How many of you are Adventists? Let's just raise your hands. All right. Well, you know what? Here's my answer. When somebody says, how many of you are Adventists, I don't necessarily raise my hand. I understand why you did it. But you know what I believe? I believe you're more than Adventists. I believe you're Seventh-day Adventists. Did you catch that? You're not just Adventists because so are Baptists and so are Pentecostals and so are Apostolics. But you're not Baptists, are you? Are you Seventh-day Baptists? No, you're not. You are Seventh-day what? Seventh-day Adventists. There's something that makes Seventh-day Adventists different from the other Adventist groups. What are they? They're called pillars of the faith. One thing you need to understand in your Bible study is what are our pillars? You need to understand your heritage. You need to understand who am I? Why am I part of this group versus another group? Because I don't know if you see it, and especially you see it in music and worship, but there's an amalgamation. There is a blending of Seventh-day Adventists with other churches. There are people who are constantly making those efforts. You will notice that a lot of times, even in our singing and our music, we sound, like, we sound just like the folks that are in the churches that call Babylon, and we offer the same offerings they offer to God, and we call it music and worship. And many a times we don't understand, and the reason why is because a lot of Seventh-day Adventists are busy at home listening to John P. Key. They're at home listening to Yolanda Adams. They're home listening to Donnie McClurkin. They're home listening to all these people that are literally mixing, they're bringing before God what's called strange fire. They're mixing the holy and the profane. You can't have jazz music and hip-hop beats and all this other stuff and talk about we praise the Lord in the sanctuary. You need to go back and read your Bibles. You go back to Leviticus, the 10th chapter, brothers and sisters, Nadab and Abihu tried that stuff, sons of the priests, and they were burnt up in the sanctuary. We have to understand that God has called us to be a peculiar, distinct people. And even in our music, even in our worship, in, 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 in how we behave as children of God, God says there should be something different about us in comparison to what we see taking place, not just in the world, but even in the churches that God has says is fallen, is fallen. So you need to get back to understanding your blueprint. You need to understand why am I a seven-day Adventist? I believe that many of us, especially our young people, especially in Europe and in the United Kingdom, we have lost to a large degree our understanding of what does it mean to be a Seventh-day Adventist. We are constantly testifying that we want to be like the other churches. And that is not pleasing to God. I... I this is public and television, so I'm not going to say it. But th there was something that was said here that if I was not being recorded, I would tell you. Seriously, I, I would tell you. In other words, there th there's something that somebody said about some things that was taking place here. And I'm just itching to tell you. But seriously, I, just don't, I don't believe that God's business needs to go before the, the Internet world. So that's the reason why there's some things that just don't need to be said out there. But I'm just telling you, brothers and sisters, we need to understand Satan has put together a very diabolical plan to make sure you don't know who you are. He wants to make sure that you will find so attractive what's happening in the other churches that one day you'll be like what Ellen White said. You'll be counted amongst that class that will abandon the faith and join the ranks with the opposition. And this is why when you start studying your Bible, you want to go back and say, what are our blue? What, what's our pillars? What, what is it that we really believe as a movement that makes us distinct? What's up here? is what makes us distinct from any 
other denominated group. These are things that you need to start understanding, brothers and sisters, because the line is being closely drawn and there are movements happening all around our world that are designed to eliminate and erase what it means to be a Seventh-day Adventist. And unfortunately, there are some wolves in sheep's clothing in our ranks that are assisting this devilish effort. And it is because of that that we need to be on guard. We need to be on alert. We need to study. And therefore, here are some books that I'm going to recommend. Some of these books, you can actually get them in ebook form. Uh, one of these books, I actually can, two of these books, I can actually forward it to you. I can send it to uh, Brother Ramden, and I can literally send you a link that will help you download on your iPhone, iPads, and tab uh, tablets, and it will download 400 ebooks. But they're all written by our various pioneers. And if any of you find value in that, I will give that link, and you can download it all for free. Now, what are some of these books? Number one, The Cross and Its Shadow. The foundation of the faith of Seventh-day Adventists is the sanctuary. If you don't understand the sanctuary message, you don't know what it means to be a Seventh-day Adventist. So if somebody were to pull you aside as a young person and say, excuse me, explain the sanctuary. For me. Are you a Seventh-day Adventist? You say, yes, I am. They say, okay, tell me about this sanctuary message that you all believe in. If you would say, uh, I really don't know, then what that means is you don't really know what it means to be a Seventh-day Adventist yet. The whole relevance of the Seventh-day Adventist church is our understanding of a sanctuary that's, that's in heaven and a ministration that's taking place there. Once we don't understand that, we don't understand what it means to be a Seventh-day Adventist. And when we don't understand what it means to be SDA, it's easier to bring Babylonian stuff in SDA. Okay? So I'm going to encourage you, get books like The Cross and Its Shadow. When I send you that link, this book will actually be right on it. This link, The Cross and Its Shadow. The other book here, you actually can get it in an e-book form. I, uh, this book is called Ransom and Reunion Through the Sanctuary. All I could tell you is have a box of tissues nearby when you read that book. That book breaks your heart, brothers and sisters, not in a bad way, in a good way. It reveals the love of God through the sanctuary like no other book I've ever read in my life. I am serious. I remember when I was a youth leader and I started to get young people all throughout the Atlantic Union Conference, and we started to study the book Ransom Every Union Through the Sanctuary. We saw revivals take place in the hearts of so many youth. I'm talking about 15, 16, 17-year-olds. And all of a sudden, when they came in contact with Christ, their righteousness, in the sanctuary, they literally started to lose their desire for the things of the world. So I'm just letting you know, these books are incredible as it relates to really understanding our sanctuary message. In addition to that, this book right here is probably one of the best books that has been put together on explaining Seventh-day Adventist history. These are books you need to study. You can set a studies guide all throughout the year. But this book is called The Great Second Advent Movement. It was put together by one of our pioneers, J.N. Lothborough. And Elder Lothborough, uh, you know, he, it, Ellen White, she herself endorses his book. Isn't that something? She says, Elder Lothborough's book should receive attention. Talking about this book right here. It was put together in 1905, and it is an incredible recording of why and how the Seventh-day Adventist movement came into existence. If you have not read these books, brothers and sisters, I am telling you, you are doing yourself a disservice. Anytime inspiration endorses a book to read, you should read it. Now, in addition to that, Daniel and the Revelation. Daniel and the Revelation, we're told, those who are preparing to enter the ministry who desire to become successful students of the prophecies will find Daniel and the Revelation an invaluable help. They need to understand this book. It speaks of past, present, and future, laying out the past so plainly that none need err 
They're in. I would imagine a group of young people like yourselves getting together on a Sunday when everybody else wants to do whatever they normally do, and you actually are taking these books out as young people, and you're literally studying them out and pleading with God to say, Lord, open my eyes and help me behold wondrous things out of your word. I wonder what kind of generation would be raised up in the United Kingdom, in the North England Conference or the South England Conference, if some young people took hold to God's counsels and said, I'm going to do this. This is what God wants. I'm going to do this by his grace. And a few of you get together. Let me tell you something. The world was turned upside down with just a handful of disciples. If the world was turned upside down with a handful of disciples, what can happen here in the UK with just a handful of young people that are serious about God's business? So therefore, I want you to think about these books. And then, of course, get into your Conflict of the Ages series. This is a devotional plan that I'm going to set before you that you can actually try it. And I believe I've done this. I'm up to my third time going cover to cover through all of these books. My third time. And I'm just every time I read it, I get a deeper and deeper understanding. So here's a devotional plan that if you don't have one already, I'm going to recommend this for you. If you don't have it, this is a devotional plan you can put together. Number one, you're going to study three chapters of your Bible per day and 10 pages from your book. Now, this is going to take approximately an hour to do. So if you can set aside an hour for good, focused, devotional study time, this is what I'm going to recommend. All right? You're going to study three chapters from the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, 3. You're going to take your first book, Patriarchs and Prophets, and you're going to study the first 10 pages of the first chapter. When you're and then you're done. Then day two, you're going to do Genesis 4, 5, 6, and then you're going to do another 10 pages. Day three, Genesis 7, 8, 9, another 10 pages. You're going to keep doing that until you finish Patriarchs and Prophets, and then what's the next book you're going to pick up? What's it, look at the order. What's the next book you're going to pick up? Prophets and Kings, and then you're going to do it. Patriarchs and Prophets covers Genesis to 1 Samuel. Prophets and Kings covers 1 Samuel to Malachi. Desire of Ages covers Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels. The Acts of the Apostles covers the book of Acts to Revelation. The book Great Controversy covers the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation and gives a beautiful picture of Protestant history. Now, the Great Controversy does this. If you're reading The Great Hope, just understand that's an extraction from The Great Controversy, and it does not have the Protestant history side of it. So I am not recommending Great Hope for you when we're talking about this. So do not confuse the two. I'm talking about The Great Controversy, the whole book. Amen? Amen. All right. So... What do you do after you've studied these things? Number one, you're going to ask yourself three questions. In other words, you're kind of going to take out a journal, if you will. And you're going to ask yourself three questions at the end of every devotion. Number one, the first question is, what was the lesson talking about? That's going to be the first question you're going to ask yourself. So when you read, when you do your three chapters and you do your ten pages, then you're going to go ahead and take out your notepad, your journal, and then you're going to say, all right, what was it talking about that I learned today? You know how it is. Sometimes we can read stuff and we almost forget what we read as fast as we read it. Is that right? This is what's going to help you not forget. So what you're going to do now is you're going to jot down. What was this lesson talking about anyhow? But then after you understand what the lesson was talking about, then you ask yourself the second question, which is this. What does it have to do with me? This is how you take past truth and make it present truth. So you're going to first ask, what is the lesson talking about? And then the second thing you're going to ask is, what does it have to do with me? This is how the gospel becomes practical. If you're studying Noah and the flood, you're going to say, okay, what was the lesson talking about? It was talking about the flood. 
It was talking about the antediluvian people and how they disregarded God and his commands through his servant Moses. And as a result of disregarding God and staying in rebellion, it caused God to make a decision to bring a judgment of which he was going to allow a flood to come to the world. What does that have to do with me? God has sent messengers to me in the form of pastor, elder, a friend. God has sent messages to me from the Bible, from the spirit of prophecy. God has sent messages to me through Audioverse, YouTube, and the Present Truth Speakers. God has sent a message to me. If I, like the antediluvians, keep ignoring God's truth and choose to live according to my own ways, God is going to allow judgment to be executed upon me. And I may end up being like the antediluvians. You get it? So number one, what was the lesson talking about? Number two, what does it have to do with me? Number three, what did I learn of God's character? That is probably the most important question. Jesus said, search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, for they are they which testify of me. When you study the Bible, you must behold Christ. You must be deliberate in saying, what does this reveal about God's character of what I read this morning? Very often we read Bible verses and we read spirit of prophecy quotations, but a lot of times we cannot see God's character in the midst of the reading. And as a result of that, our hearts are not technically, our hearts are, a lot of times are not affected. So I'm encouraging you, when you read, you have a mission, you have a goal. My goal is I need to understand what it's talking about. Then I need to understand what does it have to do with me in 2015. Then I need to understand what does this reveal about God's character? This is how the Bible will become exciting to you. Literally, you're talking to a guy who's a high school dropout. To date, all I have is a general equivalency diploma. That's what I have. I don't even have a college degree. And I'm not saying that to try to impress you on anything. And what I'm saying is, is that I don't need a college degree to understand the word of God intelligently. And I'm thankful for that. But I'm not by here any means discrediting or discouraging you from getting academic attainment. What I'm saying is that I can remember when I hated reading. The Seventh-day Adventist church got me interested in reading. I literally started studying the Bible. I said, my word, I can't believe all this stuff is there. I didn't know my brain, which was so messed up, I didn't know that it could actually understand these things. So what I'm telling you is that God can do something incredible with your mind no matter what your background is. If some of you are dyslexic, if some of you have all sorts of, of problems with focus, if some of you have backgrounds where you went through depression and you're going through all sorts of emotional instability, what I'm telling you is that there is no mind that is too dull or damaged that God cannot make brilliant. You understand that? God can take your mind and ignite it through the power of his Holy Spirit, and what wants to be dumb will now become brilliant. But you got to start thinking when you read, and don't just read. Think, reason, ask yourself, what is it talking about? What does it have to do with me? What am I learning about God and his character through the reading? And you will find things will change for the better. In addition to your study life, you're going to need to take some time for prayer. The Bible lets us know in the book of Psalms, the 55th division and verse 17, it says evening and morning and at noon will I pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice. You want to start setting time to pray. Do not just know you need to pray, set times to pray. Hey, I got news for you. I've been doing ministry for many years, many years. And what I'm telling you is this. Even ministers can begin to work so hard that they neglect time for prayer. 
And what, and what, what will surprise you is the ministers wonder why sometimes we're so weak. We wonder why, man, I'm, I'm ministering to the young people. I'm trying to do this work, that work, and we're not winning souls. Brothers and sisters, no soul will be won without prayer. You and I must understand. Martin Luther said prayer is the better half of study. You and I need to understand our need to make time for prayer. Don't just know you're supposed to pray. The devil's too smart. He's going to literally say, good, you know how to pray. You know what he's going to keep doing? He's going to say, don't worry, just do it later. You're going to be like, man, I know I need to pray. I haven't prayed all day. That's all right. Yeah, just do it later. You're busy. You got to get some stuff done. And he will do everything possible. We're told in the book, Great Controversy, page 519. It says, Satan well knows that those whom he can get to neglect prayer and the searching of the scriptures will be overcome by his attacks. So therefore, you cannot neglect prayer. So I'm recommending set time for prayer. You literally set time for it. And once you set your time for it, guard it jealously. Literally guard it jealously. You got to get to a place where you say, look, if 630 is my time, even when your friends text you and say, guess what? You won't believe it. You got to tell them, talk to you in 30 minutes. You got to literally cut them off and be like, look, I'm busy. I've made a priority with my first love, and I need to stay, keep the covenant with him. You understand that? Amen. In addition to that, you want to make sure you get yourselves involved in evangelistic work. One of the things that's killing a lot of our young people is you have too much idle time. There's too much downtime. And the more idle time you have is the more the devil's workshop is open to play in. So God wants you to bridge the gap of some of that idle time with evangelism. The Bible makes it very clear. Let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. So the Bible makes it very clear. You want to get yourself involved. Start asking your pastor, your elders. Start asking your various leaders. Ask them, hey, is this something that I can be involved in in the work and the effort of soul winning? And if they don't have it, go to God in prayer and say, Father, what would you have me to do? And God will assign you. Because one thing I know for sure is the Lord is truly searching diligently to find individuals who will be interested in being involved in the work of soul saving. And the work of soul saving begins right here. The restoration and uplifting of humanity begins in the home. The first people you might consider studying with is your sister, your brother your nephews and your cousins. And guess what? It might even be your parents. The reality is, is that even some of our parents are not converted. My father was not converted. I was converted first, and then God used me to bring the message to my father. My mother was not converted. God had to bring me in the message first, and then I brought it to my mother. Both my mother and my father died under the banner of the third angel's message. You understand that? So God, he can use you so that you may win souls, but it begins in your home. So do not be so quick to run out of your house when there might be people in need of salvation inside your house. Now, one of the more practical means, and I'm going to really get into some meat right here in these last 12 minutes or so we have. One of the things that is very practical that I want you to consider, when we do the work of soul winning, I want to let you know that all of you in this room are doing a work of soul winning right now. Did you know that? You're all doing a work of soul or of evangelism, shall I say. Let me not say soul winning. Did you know all of you are doing a work of evangelism even in this room right now? Do you know you've been doing a work of evangelism all throughout this week? Can I show you a way you was doing that? Watch this. We know Jesus says, go ye therefore and teach all nations, right? 
baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, et cetera, and he's calling us. I want to show you how we have been doing evangelism all week, and the question I want you to ask yourself is what kind of evangelism have I been doing? Notice this statement. Our words, our actions, and what else? Our dress, our daily living what? Preachers. Gathering with Christ or scattering abroad? It says this is no trivial matter to be passed off with a jest. The subject of dress demands serious reflection and much prayer. Did you know that by the way that we literally dress ourselves every day, we are doing the work of evangelism? Our clothing preaches a message. And it does one of two things. It either gathers to Christ or scatters abroad. What kind of evangelism were you doing this week? I want you to think about that. Or shall I ask it this way? What kind of evangelism does miniskirts, shirts with very low cleavage where the breasts are literally popping out of the shirt, garments that literally hug up against the backside that, accent that shows the accentuation of the backside? My question to you is, does that gather to Christ or does that scatter? Be honest with yourself. You tell me, which one does it do? You see, the, the word scatter is being said very weakly. But listen to what I'm saying to you. I have learned that ministers who truly love you will tell you the truth. What I'm telling you is that I love you and I'm telling you the truth. We have to understand, one of the greatest things that I've seen Satan consistently get away with is we know how to gather young people together to sing. We know how to gather young people together to get them to pray. We know how to gather young people together to say, let's go in a community and let's put books in people's hands. But the problem is, is that in our downtime, when we're not giving out books, when we're not singing in the choir, and when we're not spending time in groups of prayer, when we're having what's called recreation or leisure, these are some of the opportunities where Satan takes the highest advantages of us. And many a times, it can be manifested even in how we cover ourselves. Sisters, I'm here to let you know, and I want to apologize to you on behalf of every pervert that made you think that the more that you reveal your anatomy is the higher your value. Those individuals have lied to you. God wants you to understand that he looks at you as a temple, a temple that he desires to live in and to dwell in. And I marvel that we consistently want to bring out holiness amongst our youth when we see literally the garments of harlotry being put upon them. And many a times we say nothing. Somebody says, what do you mean garments of harlotry? Go to Proverbs 7. If you look at Proverbs, the seventh chapter, you will find that the Bible actually shows that clothing gives messages. Clothing has personalities. In other words, this counsels on health, page 600. This is not something that Ellen White just conjured up in her mind. This is biblical. Notice what the Bible says in Proverbs 7. The Bible says in Proverbs, the seventh chapter. When you get there, please let me know by saying amen. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 7, notice what it says in verse 10. Proverbs 7 and verse 10. It says, and behold, there met him a woman with the what? It says, there met him a woman with the attire of an harlot and subtle of heart. Wait a minute. In this verse, did it say the woman was a harlot? No. What was connected to harlotry in the verse? Her clothes. Do you see that? 
You see, the Bible understands that there's some garments that are directly connected to harlotry. And it is our responsibility as ministers, not just simply of the gospel, but of the everlasting gospel to make it known to our people that there's a way that we can dress that either references God and his righteousness or Satan and impurity. Your bodies are precious. Your bodies are something that God wanted reserved for the man who is qualified to be the priest of your home to behold and to enjoy. But your bodies were not made for the common brother on the street or even the common brother in the church to behold and to lust after. And sisters, God has given you a high responsibility. He wants you to understand. That when you think about it, and I'm very serious when I say this, saints, because this is the part people don't like. As long as you say, oh, study the Bible, everybody likes that. Oh, pray, everybody likes that. Let's go do evangelism, give out books, everybody likes that. But once you start talking about real practical Christianity in our social relations, it's not that the Bible and spirit of prophecy is void of counsel. It's just sometimes we have not made it a point of study for ourselves. And I'm sorry, this is my last chance to talk to you all. So I'm not going to leave here and not tell you the truth on these points. I am letting you know, brothers and sisters, from a heart, believe it or not, Believe it or not, a heart actually filled with love. Not with hatred, love. Jesus says in Revelation 3.19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. What I'm telling you is, is you are going to find your evangelistic work stumped if we continue to dress in manners that the Bible condemns. We must understand what it means to dress in modest apparel. Gentlemen, the skinnies movement seems to run rampant, especially throughout Europe and the UK. And what happens is a lot of our brothers are now wearing these tight-fitting pants, just like a lot of sisters who wear their tight-fitting jeans. And what we don't understand is that these are plans and coins of the devil to try to erase the image of God. Do you not pay attention to what's happening in the climate of our world? We are living in a time right now where literally Satan is doing everything possible to erase what masculinity and femininity is. We are not to join with this movement. We are to make a distinct and plain statement before God and before men. So God wants you to understand, even down to how you cover yourselves, I would like to educate you on this point, or rather suggest to you, make dress reform a deliberate point of study. It's not studied about often. It's not talked about often. It is often neglected, and we do it to our own detriment. I marvel that we can say we are a Bible and spirit of prophecy believing people, yet we are told in volume four, the testimonies to the church, page four, six, seven, obedience to fashion is pervading our Seventh-day Adventist churches and is doing more than any other power to separate our people from God. How can we intelligently know that something more than any other power is working in our ranks to separate us from God, and that's the subject we don't touch? That's not even sensible. That's not even logical. So what I want to encourage you to do, sisters, is I want you to understand your value. I want, I want you to seek God and to find once again your value when you start going through the text. So that way you can really start understanding that. Gentlemen, we had our talk the other night. I talked to the brothers, sisters, just to let you know. 
So don't think that this is some beat-up session on the women. Hey, by the way, I just want to let you know, if I had the time to show you, I would. But we actually have a quotation that says, Satan chooses to use women because he can use them more effectively than men. So that's another reason why I give you those quotations. Anybody ask me for it right after the meeting, I'll gladly give it to you. So what I'm saying is, is that when it comes to dress, that's an issue with women. When it comes to sports, that's an issue with guys. You understand that? Sports is a distraction too. But what I'm saying is, is that God wants us to understand that there's a great work that he wants us to do, but Satan's going to do everything possible to unfit you for this work. So you and I got to make sure, Lord, show me how I can be like that company of soldiers. Let me give you this because my time absolutely ran out. I was going to talk about temperance because if ever there was a need for temperance, we need it now. We need it in all phases of life and all these things. I was going to go through that, but I want to give you this picture. I want to give you this picture as we close. I believe God wants us to unify. He wants us to unify in truth, but he wants us to unify. Because it says right here very clearly, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have loved one to another. He wants us to unify. But we, again, only unify in truth. Don't ever forget that. Ephesians 4 and verse 3, the Bible says, unity of the spirit. And John 16, 13 says, spirit of truth. As we unify, we must make a united message to the world who's dying in sin. And I just want to give you a picture of the power of unity in a very practical way as I was looking at this group here. This group did something that I thought was so amazing that I said, man, what if we could be so united with the word of God? What if we could be so united with God's truth that we could actually function like this? So I want you to watch this very quickly as we have these last couple of minutes together. Um, it does have a little sound to it, but, you know, so this is something that I want you to just picture. This is what God wants to do with us as a movement, as his people in these very last moments of earth's history. Watch this. What if we could become a united company of soldiers under the banner of the Lord, moving in one marching order under the voice of one commander and doing the work of God in such a way that the way these people did something so temporal and caused people to say, ooh, and marvel. What would the world say when they see a united company of God's soldiers marching in marching orders of, under our commander? commander? doing what God has told us to do. We are told, my attention was then turned to the company I had seen who were mightily shaken. I was shown those whom I had before seen weeping and praying in agony of spirit. It says the company of guardian angels around them had been doubled. It says they were clothed with an armor from their head to their feet. They moved in what kind of order? They moved in exact order like a company of soldiers. Their countenances expressed the severe conflict which they had endured, the agonizing struggle they had passed through, yet their features marked with severe internal anguish now shone with the light and glory of heaven. They had obtained the victory, and it called forth from them the deepest gratitude and holy, sacred joy. If it's your desire to dare to be different, you see, to dare to be different is to dare to be Daniel, is to dare to be Joseph, is to dare to be the youth in the days of Jesus. If it's your desire to say, Lord, I don't want to be common. I want to be different. I want to do things your way because I want to, at the end of the experience, to be holy as you are holy. And if that is your desire, then I'm going to ask you to so signify by standing to your feet with me. I just want to pray with you. I want to pray for you. And uh, as we close, I understand that I'll be able to come back tomorrow morning with you. If you have questions, write them down. And I'll be happy to play my part in answering those questions when we have our question and answer time together. Why don't we go ahead and let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Loving Father, we are so grateful. We thank you, Lord, that we have a high and holy calling. And it's going to require much sacrifice, much surrender. But, Lord, in the end of it, 
It's going to fill our hearts with the deepest and greatest joy and gratitude. I pray that you will bless these young people beyond their expectations, that you help them to realize that time is almost finished. There will be distractions all around us. But by your grace, Lord, help us to be thou faithful, even unto death. And then and only then shall we receive our crown of life. I thank you that you've heard this prayer, and I thank you for answering it by faith. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.